Tonight on the DTD Podcast, we've got an author that spent two tours to Afghanistan. He's a Sergeant First Class in the Army now. He's here to talk about all of his experiences over there and how they've affected him back here. Sean Tobias Ambrose is going to be on the show tonight, so let's get into it. Crazy Dutch bastard. What we've got here is failure to communicate. 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That's cute. I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious? I am serious. And don't call me sure. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. We have a special show tonight. This guy has done and seen some things that the normal person hasn't it's affected him over there it's affected him back here but he's decided to put that together to help out other veterans and other people who might be going through some trouble so let's welcome to the show sean how are you man i'm good thank you for having me on yeah man i'm so excited we've had some hiccups trying to get this recorded and everything but i'm glad that we're finally back into it so let's real quickly go over your career you enlisted in 2008 you have been to fort carson schofield barracks joint base lewis mccord fort Leonardwood. you've been a medic for your unit you've been a uh I guess you would say sharpshooter or a sniper for your unit. Uh, you've been on a special reaction team. You've done two tours to Afghanistan. You got two bronze stars with V for Valor. You've got a Purple Heart. Man, you've kind of been there and done that. And why don't you hit us off right off the bat with just how old you are to have seen all that stuff? Uh, I mean, all that stuff happened pretty pretty close to my the first half of my career. It's been pretty boring. I won't say boring, but. You know, that was all the first five, six years. Uh, I'm 32 now. Just turned 32 this past October. So, yeah, I'm getting I'm getting up there. Yeah, we. I was talking to someone the other day, and I was saying when I was in the military, you see these guys that are like Sergeant Majors, and when you're, you know, a private or a specialist, you think, man, those guys are so old and they're so wise. And then now I look back, and I'm 44, and I say, man, that guy was like 37 years old, 38 <laughs> years old. Like, he, like he was a baby. Uh, I know, and, right? And being in charge of that. So... Let's talk about your book, Ghost of the Valley. You wrote it, and it's a very personal introspection. Now, what I really like about it was you don't concentrate on your entire tours that you spent over there. You you focus on, I would say, two main battles, but three or four main things that happened over there during your first tour, during your second tour. Why did you decide to write this book? Um, so I, I didn't set out to write the book like some like i did a podcast the other night and somebody asked a good question of you know uh how it's kind of helping veterans now and and you know was that the the theme of your message the entire time and i could honestly say that no um initially it was a very selfish thing of me is i had gotten here to fort leonard with last august and by november i was noticing my ptsd was changing um for the first time because 
I was always in line units with soldiers in going to the field, NTC uh, cycles, stuff like that. So I was always kept busy ever since my deployments and, you know, late night phone calls or soldier problems, stuff like that. So I was always on the run and my PTSD was always suppressed because of all the workload I was taking on. Now that I'm here as an instructor, uh, like I said, last August when I got here, it wasn't until November that I was like going out of my mind. I was going crazy. Uh, my PTSD for the first time I was noticing was evolving and it was evolving to my situation. And I didn't have late night phone calls. I was getting off at two, three o'clock every day. And I was by myself in the middle of Missouri and nowhere. And uh, my head started to talk a lot. And so somebody had mentioned to me, you should just therapeutically write. And so I didn't set out to write a book. It was, I just opened the Microsoft Word and I just started pounding away, put my feelings on paper, talking about what happened. Um, and I just kind of put, like I said, I didn't talk about the deployment as a whole. It was just main events that I think about, um, you know, daily. And uh, I had somebody look over it and they're like, dude, you should, you should turn this into a book. And kind of took it as more of like a compliment when I was like, nah. And then more people read it and they were like, yeah, do it. So then I figured, well, if I have something that good, maybe I can use it for the better to help others. And then I, it kind of formed into what it was now. And it seems like when you talk about it, like I said, it's, it's a very much of an introspection on yourself. Um, looking at, at how you felt and you talk about your feelings a lot in it, which is a, it's not a, it's not strange at all, but it's not a normal thing that you will see a lot of soldiers or people that are in front lines talk about his feelings. They'll talk about more of the objective of what was supposed to happen, uh, battle plans, all that kind of stuff. You don't really see him talk about your feelings, but over and over in the book, you talk about your feelings. So let's get into your first deployment. Um, right now you're, you're young, uh, you are excited to go over there from everything that I understand from reading the book. You're excited to go over there. You're, you're nervous, but you're excited to kind of see, cause that's why you joined the army was to, to fight for your country. So you touched down in Afghanistan thoughts that are going through your head as you get there. I think it was hard to gather fear. I think for all of us that deployed our first time, it was hard for us to really have fear because you didn't know what to be scared of yet. I mean, you knew all what the ultimate price could be was in a body bag, but you didn't really know what that looked like or how it would feel. So it was hard to wrap my mind around. I'm here, you know, especially going in Afghanistan, you know, Bagram, Bagram so built up by now. And, um, you know, you, you just didn't, there was no, there's no fighting in Bagram. You might get some rocket attacks here and there, but it still didn't feel real when I first landed. It wasn't, it didn't get real until they put us on the bird, and they were taking us to where we were going. And I, and I found out where we were going. Um, and then we landed, you know, in the mountains. That's where it kind of got real for me. And it, it, do you feel it in yourself? I, I ask a lot of guys that I talk to on this show um, on the inside. When you land, it, it doesn't feel, you know, really that maybe realistic. But as you go into the mountains, do you feel yourself changing overall? Not only mine, but do you feel your body? Do you feel your senses kind of kicking up a little more, looking around, paying attention that you might not have done in the rear? Because I think that's where when we talk about PTS, um, I think that's where a lot of that kicks in. That hypervigilance starts in your system. And I've talked to some guys on here that say it's hard to go from when you're constantly going in the red to drop it back into the green or the yellow. So do you feel that yourself as you were coming into the mountains? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I want to say that the hypervigilant or like being aware of everything that kind of kicked in my first mission when we look at, we're left seat, right seat with the, uh, 
uh, at first infantry guys, they were leaving and and they were so nonchalant going out on the, dis- the first dismount of patrol, you know, they just didn't really care. They were over. I think they had been there for like 15 months. Um, so they, yeah, so they were, they were one of the last 15 month deployment guys. And so they were hurting and they took us out on our first dismount of patrol in the Nagalam because we were out of five blessing of uh, the Peshera Valley, Korngal area. And, uh, and, and I remember, I remember looking around, like staring at everything, every little bush, like, you know, like just everything freaked me out. But I looked over at these, these, uh, big red one guys and they were just like smoking a cigarette, walking. They didn't give a shit at all. Um, I get to see the difference between, between us two. And, and then it, it did form into that for myself as the deployment went on. Where you got, I, I, I don't want to use the word lax at all, but you got more comfortable yeah. in the situation. Comfortable. I don't want to say complacent because that's the wrong word. Right, right. We were. De- I mean, it's not like those guys were suicidal and they like didn't care. They were just, they knew what to be afraid of. They knew what to look for. They knew the area so well, um, whereas I didn't. So and right. that, and as time progressed, I became that. Now, you talk about three types of fighters in your book. Uh, the first one were the extreme. That was a very small number over there. You talk about the bullies or the powerful ones that were kind of taking stuff for what they needed. And that was kind of a medium group. And then fighters hired by the Taliban. So when you're over there and you seem to get along with who you were working with a lot from the book, uh, the police officers that you were working with, the Afghan police, how do you start to look around and know like we were talking about knowing what to be afraid of good guy, bad guy, everyone looks the same. Everyone is of the pretty much of the same culture or, or mind base. So how do you as an American coming over there figure out like, okay, this is who I need to look out for. This is what I don't need to look out for and, and become comfortable in that surrounding. I I think it's hard. And I think that's one thing that this generation of warfighters have had a hard time dealing with is that you know you look at every other war before that you know world war ii stuff like that it's like you knew who the enemy was right um this is this is a new challenge of our generation of warriors that have to kind of put up with this and it's it's hard it's hard for us to make split decisions um and understanding who's good and who's bad who has good intentions and who doesn't sometimes you train the afghan police during the day and they have dinner with their cousins who were taliban at night and it's 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 really difficult for us so yeah i it's hard to, I mean, sometimes you just knew, sometimes you got those gut feelings and you could just tell, but other times, yeah, it was hard. And that's why there, there were towards the end of my first and going to my second deployment, there were a lot of those um, green on blue actions or, you know, a lot of uh, Afghan police and army turning on the Americans. And so, yeah, it was, it was really hard. Yeah. And you mentioned that uh, specifically in your book about training them during the day and then going to eat dinner with cousins and yeah. stuff like that. And so, when you know things like that, how do you separate that out? How do you kind of compartmentalize all that stuff and still work and uh, be part of that mission? I mean, it's hard. Um, you you kind of just got to hope for the best. You have to hope that the guy that you're training isn't going to turn on you. You have to hope that, I mean, because you knew it was there and you knew it was going to happen at some point. Um, but I, I tried to create relationships with these Afghan police and just bullshit with them and hang out with them and like give them an American name, talk about other things besides just the training and, and create some type of comfort level for both of us that they actually will kind of hopefully care for me. Like I'm trying to care for them and maybe that will help not cloud their judgment when they are um, being told by say the Taliban, Hey, I need you to get more information on the Americans or I need you to do this or that. And, and hopefully that'll help deescalate those situations that, you know, there is no green on blue action. 
Now, speaking about the police that you work with over there, of course it's completely different than American policing or even uh, military police because there's a difference between the civilian-based policing and military police. When you get over there, is it just... uh, it just seems to me like a nightmare. Just like it seemed from your book, so disorganized and so just like, Hey, here's a gun and a badge and here you, you do this. And is that how it was when it, when you got over there where we, they really needed us to step in because they didn't know any better. Yeah. And and they just, all they did was hang out at the police station. They weren't patrolling their, their city or their neighborhoods or villages, wherever you want to call it. They weren't out, um, you know, enforce any laws Uh, They would just hang out inside with the police chief and and bullshit and eat um, and kind of just pull security from within that compound. But they wouldn't be out with the people and they wouldn't be out engaging and talking to the people and trying to find information out and being proactive. And so that's where we had to come in and and those joint patrols help, you know, engage with the the local populace and um, teach them that they need to be at the forefront. They need to attack these things before it happens and stop being so reactive in every scenario every every day because that or else we if we didn't they literally would just sit there and watch cars go by you know so but we did see a progressive increase in training and um just just their effectiveness in time and i think that's what it all kind of goes back to is they don't do any better because they don't know any better once they're taught that of course you're going to have those one offers and and stuff like that 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 don't follow that but sooner or later they're going to start to kind of understand hey this is what we really are doing this job for another job that you had over there that was interesting to me they had sent you to emt school and they made you a medic in the aid station and it's not you know a medic at sick call on post it's you're seeing real life shit every day and and you seem to talk about the aid station and being a medic with as much fondness as um, being a police officer. And and on your, we'll get into it later on, but into your second deployment, uh, that EMT stuff became kind of almost at the forefront in the final battle that you talk about in there. So can you talk yeah. about your feelings of being a medic and and being there and seeing all that stuff and just how it affected you personally? So yeah, I, I had up to that point in my life, being 18 years old, I had no medical experience. I didn't even have an inkling of uh, wanting to be a medic or you know a nurse or the medical world just was not part of my life uh, when I was 18 and younger. Um, I, I just knew that I put a Band-Aid on and that was about it. Um, and so, yeah, because of the way the Afghan war was fought and very non-contiguous, meaning there are, you know, you have a platoon size element and then they split that platoon up and they scatter us throughout the mountainous area and in doing so because there's so much ground to cover in Afghanistan um there weren't enough medics to go around and so prior to me deploying they sent me to EMT school you know prior to the surge and and that was good enough for them so that you know when I got there they said hey you're going to be a medic and I it kind of took me by surprise I was like no no no, I'm I'm an MP and they're like yeah we don't give a shit here's an aid bag go to the aid station sign out the morphine, you know, cause it's considered a sensitive item. And they, and I would have to, um, I would have to work in the aid station, uh, pretty much every single day. Um, when I wasn't engaged on mission, I had to be in the aid station every Thursday night. We had study halls. We were reading the latest medicine, updating ourselves on, on certain techniques and stuff like that. 
and and then we actually went out on patrol. I was the medic for the squad, but I was also driving the truck, so I had to carry around the uh, the is that little that little piece that would combat lock the door from the outside. Mm-hmm. I would essentially because my team leader would dismount, I would have to dismount as the medic, and I would combat lock the door. My gunner's in the truck all by himself, um, and then I would go on patrol. So it's just we were we were worked thin. It is what it is, but yeah, it. Uh, it was a hell of an experience, uh, especially, you know, like I said, I had three casualties I worked on my second deployment. That was because I was in a more of a team leader role and it just wasn't the situations that didn't present themselves. Mm-hmm. My first deployment, I had 113 casualties that I worked on. Um, and it took me for the first 20 to really get comfortable. Um, and especially that first American, man, it was rough. So it, it definitely took a toll on my psyche just because it's not something that I signed up for. I didn't, I didn't walk into the recruiting station saying, this is what I want to do. Right. Now I'm, I'm completely glad that they put me in that position, that my leadership had confidence in me and that I have those experience now. But yeah, at, at the time it took me by surprise a lot. Which do you think of, and I guess this is the right time for this question. Which do you think your role as a military police officer your role as a medic or your role as a sniper, or we can even talk about like your SRT days, but I think those are going to be far at the back. Which do you think promoted the most of the PTS that you go through? Probably medic. Um, obviously because it's, it's a lot of engagement with the person who you're, your patient, you know, sometimes you're the last thing they see when they die. Right. Um, and, and sometimes you question a lot of your decision-making was I fast enough? Did I do this right? You know, it's a lot of it is on you. Um, I, I've always been grateful to be an MP. I've always been an AMP, 31 Bravo. I've never been anything else than that. But the the experiences as a medic and as a designated squad marksman or whatever you want to call it have, have been amazing. But yeah, it, I think that medic stuff was the best and the worst days of my life just because, and then, and then when you do good for not just American casualties, but Afghan casualties, kids, right. it, it makes you feel good about yourself that you're actually doing something, you know, in such in a country in a, in a war like Afghanistan, where it's the wild, wild West, it's been fight fighting for over 20 years now, at least with us, um, you know, the there's Russians so many strategic decisions. That. Yeah. And way the, before the, that. Yeah. And there's so many strategic decisions that go into this whole war things that I can't control. The one thing I can control is whether this person lives or dies. And I feel like that's my piece of the puzzle that I can help in this fucking crazy ass wars. Is this one thing I could, I could affect this. So I, fe- I feel like I was actually doing something in the war um, and not just driving around waiting to get blown up and shot. So it was something that I took very personal. And so when you look at your other positions, you know, going out in the field with your designated marksman, I think those things kind of distance you from the battlefield. Um, mm. they're, they're not so, like you said, with being a medic, that one-on-one staring right into the face of it. And I think that can mask it a little bit because you seem to, in the book, enjoy that job. Whenever you got to go out and yeah. do that job, you, you really enjoyed it, especially when uh, I think during the presidential elections, you would set up with your troops uh, overlooking the, the police station and watch that and kind of rotate your guys in and out. And you seem to, of all the things that you talk about in the book, you seem to enjoy that a lot. And I mean enjoy it as in the sense of there wasn't that, um, there wasn't kind of that tight-chestedness 
when you talk about the sniper that when you talk about everything else, would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, like I said, it's just that, that personal connection with the people. Right. And this is my purpose. This is my job. I need to keep them safe. And, and yeah, I think that it'll always have a special place in my heart. Well, so let's talk about the first time bullets start flying around you. We've talked about as you get into Afghanistan, you don't kind of understand the full effect of everything. Then you come to the mountains, you start feeling it a little more. First time bullets start flying. Head and heart, what are we thinking? Well, the so I talk about it in the book, um, you know, the first couple months, you know, there was maybe some explosions, some rocket attacks. Nothing was really directed at us um, right. as the units were switching out. It was the presidential elections when we were sitting on the mountain. That was my first that's where I earned my cab. That was my first contact with the enemy. And um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't think it was until after I got off that mountain that I started to process, you know, three day, you know, it was a three day thing. So on day four is when I, I started to really process everything um, as far as the seriousness of holy shit, like we all almost died. You know, and when you read that, that part in the book where the Apaches came in and, and mm-hmm. did the their gun runs. runs. Yeah, that that kind of took me like, holy shit, like, you know, what was I thinking? Like, you know, I should have waited. I gave our position away. You know, I was starting starting to question myself for the first time um, as a private, you know, like, man, I could have jeopardized us. But, you know, I was trying to go get these guys who I thought were dead. And so I, you know, because that was my job. So, um, yeah, it it brought a lot of for the first time, it brought a lot of like decision making and critical thinking in in my own mind you know, do my own little internal AAR of like, damn, was I making the right decisions? And then it made me be on my toes a little bit more going forward. So. And it seems like whenever that happens, um, you start, you're a very confident guy from, from the book and from talking to you. Um, you're a confident guy. So the first time that happens where you start really questioning yourself and saying, what did I do wrong? That that's gotta be a weird feeling. And for that to happen, because even when you talk about your youth and playing football, you seem like you knew what you were doing. You didn't really question yourself. You, you knew when everything was going on, when you start to question yourself, one, it's gotta be a weird thing to start questioning yourself at that age. And then two, to question yourself where it's life or death. It's not, Hey, we're going to lose the football game. Someone's going to die with the wrong decisions made. How does that affect you personally? And how do you get past that in that kind of situation? Cause that's a situation where you need to get up, reload and go, or someone's going to get hurt. So how does that happen with a young guy like yourself over there? I don't know. That's a good question. I'm, I'm not really sure. I just, I, I had really good NCOs, my entire platoon, just because um, I start out with one squad and I got moved over to be a medic to another squad. So I really got to know the entire platoon, all the NCOs and the build up to the deployment and while we were there. And so I just never wanted to disappoint them. And they and they were really hard on us during training prior to the deployment. And they were really hard on us to keep us on our toes during the deployment and not get complacent. And we just respected all of our leaders so much. Like, damn, we had some some of the best NCOs. Just the way the platoon was put together was one of a kind. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think questioning myself was because I did not want to let those guys down because of, of my role, you know, as an MP, but also a medic, I just took, I tried to take it as serious as I could. And then when I did mess up, I, I really took myself down a notch, like, man, you fucking idiot. Like you're going to, you're going to piss these guys off. Like, you know, these are 
battle-tested, you know, veterans who've got multiple deployments. Right. And I, this is my first one, and I just didn't want to piss them off. So everything I did was for my leaders. I, I just wanted to impress them, and I wanted, I wanted them, I wanted to earn their respect essentially. So. And so when you do that, and you're you're constantly trying to impress, but you're also knowing this is how I want to lead when I become older. Cause you mentioned that numerous times in the book, yeah. uh, you mentioned during the big battle that you're talking about where 200 meters turns into 2000 meters and you're running up this side of this hill, you're trying to get these people, you look around and you don't see any of your NCOs. I, I want to say phase They're They're just planning the next part They're They're moving. And you even have one. So I'm first class Egan's first thought was to give you water, make sure you're okay. Make sure that you're ready to go on the mission. How does he have that kind of mental fortitude is the question that you ask yourself. So to that, did you ever figure out how he had that mental fortitude and did you get it yourself for the second part? No, I, I don't know. I don't know how they did it. Um, I don't know what experiences they had prior to that first big battle, you know, maybe on their previous deployments to Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever. And I was the only private on that mountain or part of that rescue team that went up. The rest of them were all E5 and above um, from E5 to first sergeant. The eight of us that were nine of us that went up, I was the only soldier. So all I was looking at was the epitome of a leader, everything that they were doing. And so every person I looked at, whereas I was having self-doubt in those situations, they were like, problem? All right, too easy. Here's the solution. Move on to the next one. And then it's like, I, you know, I'm, I'm constantly thinking like, dude, there's no way we're making it down this mountain without paying a bigger price. Like, this is stupid. What are we doing? Blah, blah, blah. And they were just like, whatever. Hey, let's go. And like, they were just, they're just problem solvers. I, I don't know. I, and so I try to, I try to keep that day at the forefront of my mind. Every time I have to make a leadership decision. And I, I always think of the human dimension. I think of the soldiers are always at the end of my decisions and I try to make the best decision possible. And so a lot of my leadership foundation was based off of that day and every, everything that I kind of witnessed, um, especially leading to that second big battle. So let's talk about that second big battle. I want to kind of take a backseat to this. I just want you to walk through it. Um, I've seen a couple of videos of you where you just, of course, we don't have the slides and everything where you're talking to like some West Point guys, but can you just walk us through that battle? I'm not going to ask a lot of questions, but just kind of from beginning to end. And if there's something that I want to like focus on, let's, um, I'll yeah. jump in on you. Yeah. So, so essentially we were, um, there was a squad of us MPs, 16 of us four gun trucks. We were attached to 25th ID and they wanted to go back into the Pesh River Valley that the 101st Airborne had pulled out the year prior. Um, and so I was, I was in this valley on my whole first deployment. And so I knew the area very well. And I was the only one in the company had been in this area. So uh, we, we were the ones that got chosen to go be part of this operation, uh, Operation Diamond Head. And essentially infantry air assaulted in a one hilltop I, th I think the rangers or somebody else uh, air assaulted i'm sure sf was there they were all doing their own you know infantry things right they were taking the fight to the enemy up in the mountains um but because of the cars i-12 rules we had to do everything jointly with the um, afghan police and so th the plan was we were going to go into the valley link up with the afghan police and then proceed forward into the valley with them um and then when we got to the first checkpoint they were all dead the the checkpoint was on fire and all of their heads were beheaded and they were on sticks. And there was a message written on the wall, the police checkpoint that said, keep coming. And essentially they knew about the operation. It was the Taliban. They were taunting us to keep coming deeper into the valley. 
that they were waiting for us essentially. And so what was supposed to have been like a two week operation turned into like a month or two month operation. Um, and for us, the first week you know, pop shots here and there, nothing too crazy though. And then on the morning of August 4th is when we got a call that a Afghan humanitarian aid convoy was coming from where Fob Blessing was back to resupply and they got attacked and their own Afghan police left their people in the kill zone. And so there was a fuel truck that um, that was shot up and was left stranded with a wounded Afghan police officer shot and he's still in the kill zone by himself. Everyone else just left him. So we happened to be the closest element and they told us to go respond to it because we were a couple hundred meters away. And I was in the third gun truck um, team leader. I had my soldier, uh, my driver Garcia, my gunner Doyle and my assistant gunner uh, Melton. And when we pulled up, you know, nothing was really being fired at us. And, um, you know, I asked him what was going on. My, my squad leader said there was this police officer that was shot. And because I was still in that role as a medic, we didn't, we didn't have a platoon medic. Um, and so I told him, I said, well, I'll, I'll go out and grab him. And the one thing I didn't want, cause I, I couldn't see anything in around the mountain bend. I didn't want to walk myself into an ambush. I didn't want to put myself in a situation. I couldn't get myself out. I, I really didn't know where the enemy was at. I didn't know what I was walking into. I didn't know what it looked like. So I was kind of going in blind. And so I, I told my, my assistant gunner Melton, who was the most senior guy said like, you're in charge of the truck. If I don't come back, like take care of these guys. And so I crawled to the back of the truck and I, I ran out towards the first truck. And what I, just to paint you a picture, what I witnessed was the fuel truck was 40 feet in front of me. Uh, to the right into the ditch was the police officer shot. Uh, and then going up to the right was the village of Mateen. And to my left, right offside the driver's side was, you know, because the roads are only as wide as our vehicles, was a huge cornfield for about 200 meters and the mountain kind of inclined around us. And so it sounded like the fire was coming from like 150, 200 meters, maybe, uh, which was normal. And so I ran towards the field truck. I baseball slid into the ditch and I saw he was shot in the lower left leg. So I started working on him, tourniquet, stuff like that. And he was freaking out like more than like normal. I've worked on a lot of people and I don't know if he was just scared or, or he knew something I didn't know. I, I, I don't know. And then we started noticing that like, because he was taking his nails and he was digging with his bare hands for more defilade. He was just trying to get closer to the ground and they were trying to shoot into the ditch at this point. And so I got the situation. I said, I didn't want to get myself in. I got myself in. I was now stuck in this ditch. I couldn't lift my head. The, the rounds were coming into the ditch. And so he's grabbing onto my, my radio, my vest. He's freaking out and he's switching my channels. Now I can't call for help. I'm trying to not lift my head up and stuff like that and look at all this. And thankfully, Truck one pulled up parallel right behind me and Sergeant Kaz, my squad leader, got out and he pulled out two frag grenades, gave me like a look like get ready to run kind of thing. And uh, and he pulled the pins and just kind of lobbed them on the other side of the truck. Like not really how you're supposed to really throw a traditional grenade, which I didn't really I, I questioned it, but I was like, well, whatever. I didn't really think about it. And I grabbed my casualty, and as I'm getting out of the ditch, there's a F-16 comes in for like a like a super close show of force. Like I can see the pilot's red helmet. He he came so close to the ground. Well, I want to and stop you right there, I'm, real quick, because you mentioned one of the big points in the book was uh, Staff Sergeant Kaz when he gets out, mm -hmm. and you speak so highly of this guy in the book, and like he just seems like a like, almost like a superhero how you describe him in there. Yeah, so. Was. 
Yeah, so let's talk about him for a minute because I want to give this guy some respect because he really fucking handled up on some people that day. Um, And and you can tell in the book, like, there... you just have this way of talking about him. Like I said, that makes him seem like a superhero. So can we talk about him for just a minute? Yeah. So, so right before this operation happened, like maybe, maybe two or three weeks before this operation even took place, he wasn't even our squad leader. He, he came from Alaska. He PCS to Fort Carson, which is where we were out of. And I guess as soon as he got to Carson, he found out we were deployed and he hopped on the deployment. He loved deployment. It's like, I think it was his third deployment at that time. And so, um, and so he, he was a late deployer. He, he got to us. We had an E5 squad leader, Sergeant Hazlett, who we loved. Um, but because he was outranked by Sergeant Kaz, who was a staff sergeant, bumped him down. And so we at first kind of despised him. We were like, man, who the fuck does this guy think he is coming in? You know, Hazlett was so good. He was a really good NCO. He cared about us deeply. And, um, and, and so we kind of like despised Kaz initially. And we didn't know anything about him. And so, you know, for the first week, he was just – get to know the area. Second week, we get deployed to go up to the mountains. Third week, we find ourselves in operation. We don't even know this guy, but it was like, as soon as the round started flying, he was in his element. And I witnessed it for the first time. I just see how calm he was and he was making sound decisions. He didn't seem scared or phased. And it was like, he had been our leader for 20 years. And even though he didn't know our, he probably didn't even know our full names at this point really, or, or, or where we're from and uh, all that kind of background. It's like he took care of us. Like, you know I'm saying? Like he, like I said, he was our leader for like 20 years. So it was, it's very weird. We looked at him very differently after this, uh, after this firefight and he, he earned our respect immediately uh, as soon as this thing was over. Um, but yeah. And then he turned out to be one of the greatest leaders and mentors of mine. Okay. So let's, uh, I, I, I didn't mean to get off track, but I, I just remember <laughs> from reading the book, like when you get to that part of him stepping out of the vehicle, it's like an aura comes over him. <laughs> it was, it was like fucking God. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I, I wanted to kind of give a little, pay a little time to him just because of how you mentioned it. So the F-16 comes in really low flyby, just kind of a show of force. Cause it doesn't really do a gun run or anything. No. Um, no. you see the red helmet of the pilot, you're thinking probably, okay, we're, we're back up now. We got him that just took that out. We got low flybys. We're going to get out of this. But yeah, it turns out that it gets a little more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so, uh, so I, I called, I called a truck one. I said, drop your ramp. They dropped the ramp at the back of the truck. I'm getting my casualty in. I, I set him in. I look left into the cornfield. And one of the last things I see is a bunch of the corn stalks moving really heavily. And I remember thinking to myself, like, Jesus Christ, like, they're, they're going to try to overrun us, like, because they were, they were running towards us at this point. And so I, I closed the ramp and I wanted to sustain my casualty, check his tourniquet, make sure it didn't come loose, uh, you know, package, uh, Israeli dressing a little bit more, stuff like that. And so while I'm doing this, I look at Jelinus, the gunner, and I say, hey, man, watch this guy. Make sure he doesn't touch his tourniquet. Because from my experience, a lot of the times they didn't really understand the tourniquet. Right. The Afghans, and they would loosen it, and they would bleed out. So he was like, Roger, I'm to try to, but my gun keeps jamming. And I was like, well, keep working it, man. And so I'm trying to – I'm getting ready to reload my weapon and, 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 and check everything, make sure I'm good to go. And it's like the whole truck got quiet, and they were all looking up in the hatch that was open uh, to the top of the truck where the gun was. And – I didn't know what they were looking at. And I peeked my head over and it was my buddy, Sergeant Lane. 
And Lane was with me my first deployment. He was an OIF-1 vet. I mean, this is like, I think his fourth deployment. Um, you know, he was combat pro proven right. um, way more than I was. And so he he was like a six foot two, three dude, 200 and something pounds. He's a monster, you know, without gear. And, you know, our trucks already stand 12 feet tall. And now he was kneeling on top of the truck and he was trying to fix the, whatever was going on with the weapon, which was the trigger assembly essentially. And so the, the gas solenoid wasn't pulling on the weapon. And so um, he was messing with it. So I figured, well, I'd, I'd get up there and, and help him and cover it, at least his backside, because we were now getting shot from two sides, the cornfield area and now the village. So the gun was facing towards the cornfield. I peek up into the village and I'm starting to engage up in there. And we're sitting up there for a few minutes and Lane got tired of trying to fix the solenoid. So he told the gunner, you know, use the camera inside the truck, move the gun around, let me know when you're on target. So the gunner is inside the truck and is essentially moving the joystick and the gun around, finding targets, and he yells, good. And then Lane is manually pulling the trigger on the enemy on enemy fighters. Uh, and he's just spinning around this damn truck for I don't know how long, a couple minutes maybe, and around skims his ass cheek. And, and I was like, dude, you're done. This fucking gun's done. Like, I had to make a medical call at that point because as a medic, I, I have to make sure that everyone's obviously in positions that it's not going to jeopardize their lives and others. So I said, dude, get the fuck off your truck. The truck you're done. Right. And so as he's getting off the truck, that's when we see Sergeant Kaz and he's running from truck one by himself to the fuel truck. And, you know, it's our squad leader. We don't know this motherfucker that, like that yet, but that's the squad leader. He, you know, we can't let him go by himself. And so we jump off the truck and um, we, we get up to the fuel truck and, and Lane pull Kaz, pulls, pulls Kaz out of the fuel truck and says, you know, there's squad leader. We got to keep you safe. Drops the keys on the floorboard, and as he goes, Lane goes over to pick them up, five rounds come right through the windshield where Lane's head would have been. So he turns his fuel truck on, puts it in reverse, slams it into the into the ditch so that uh, Taliban can't capture its fuel resources. We we start turn we turn the knob on, dump the fuel into the ditch so they couldn't take it. Um, and That's then we got told to have a pool of flammable liquid fuel. surrounding yeah, you on yet another side, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> And, and so, and so it turned into the the AO commander, whoever, whatever we, we were talking to, said, "Hey, we're, we got another infantry unit coming. They're going to replace you uh, in about 15 minutes or so. We're getting spun up. To stay there, sustain the casualty, defend your position at all costs." So, um, so we had to move the trucks up a little bit because truck one was down, like I said. So, so me, Lane, and Kaz decided we were going to cover the flanks and the blind spots blind spots of all the vehicles um, because they were, they were trying to bum rush the vehicles to the point that the guns couldn't come low enough. And so um, we used truck one as cover lane and Kaz are shooting up in uh, into the village and in the cornfield. And I'm shooting in the cornfield from the backside in between truck one and two. And I'm shooting M4. I'm shooting, you know, we grabbed the boom boxes. We're throwing frag grenades. We're shooting 320 or 203s at the, out the weapon and so i shoot about 25 203s and on the 26 203 the knob on the front of my uh 203 you know the little knob that's up there sucks it just comes loose and i didn't have time to fix it so now my two threes in one hand my m4 is in the other it's completely i can't use it at all so i throw it in the truck and that was probably one of the best things that happened to me that day and so i, I asked the driver to give me his 249 he had a 200 or he had a 100 round drum on it and so I grab it, rack it. So the people back that the are listening, they might not know what that is. So let's talk about yeah. that being a squad weapon. So 
Yeah, so it's a squad automatic weapon. Essentially, it, it shoots a lot of rounds really, really fast. Uh, and that was, like I said, probably one of the best things that happened to me was I grabbed that weapon. And like I said, it had a 100-round drum, a little nutsack on the bottom of it. And so um, I, I go to the back of the truck one, and I'm just making sure that the situation's good because at this point we're being told that, like, the enemy's maneuvering around the front and back side of our vehicles as well. So we're checking the blind spots of like the ditch area, making sure, because they tried getting into the ditch at one point as well. And so Lane and Kaz are at the front of truck one and they're watching pretty much from the cornfield, front of the road, into the ditch and into Mateen. And so they have a wide area to look at. So I'm, I'm taking from the backside of the truck uh, from the village of Mateen into the cornfield. And so I circle around the back of truck one and I'm taking a knee and I'm putting my rounds onto my feed tray and I'm getting ready to rock, uh, you know, lock and load my weapon. And I look into the windshield of truck two and my, 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 uh, my friend, Sergeant Bino, he's waving his hands hysterically and he's pointing into the cornfield. And in my mind at the time, I was like, yeah, guy, like I know they're there. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. We've been shooting at that. So I didn't know what he was trying to say. Right. And, um, cause my radio was all messed up when the guy was grabbing it and stuff. And so I circle around the back of truck one. And that was when I had the scariest moment of my life. Um, I get about midway around the back of truck one, about halfway behind the truck. And I have uh, three Taliban fighters come out the cornfield and they're six to eight feet away from me. Like I could spin on these motherfuckers are so close. And we were all four of us were kind of scared to see one another. Two of them were kind of like on the road. One was um, coming up uh, from the cornfield onto the road. And um, they had all, all their weapons were kind of not lowered, but they were, they were lower at the than, pointed at me yeah kind of low ready and so i yeah they're at the low ready and, and i grabbed the 249 i looked right at the right enemy fighter and i just let it rip and i i cut the enemy fighters in half the recoil lifted it up to the left um i don't even know how long i held that damn trigger down i fucking just i just let it rip that, that um, almost seems like a quentin tarantino movie i mean the way you describe it where you come out and and everyone's just face to face yeah and i just never you know, I had seen the Taliban close. I'd worked on them. I'd worked on enemy fighters as a medic. I just never in a million years would have thought, you know, in this type of war and this type of environment that, you know, that uh, I would have ever seen them that close in a, in a confrontation like that, you know, right. in a gunfight. And so I, I immediately swung back around to the backside of the truck to catch my breath, to fucking kind of decompress for like a quick two seconds. And that's when I yelled at Kaz and Lane. I was like, dude, they're, they're about to overrun us. And I, and I'm, I'm thinking that more groups are going to come in right after them. So I'm shooting in the cornfield a little bit more, and I need to reload, and the weapons are all going dry. And I need to lube. So the lube was all the way back in my truck, in truck three. So I ran all the way back to my truck. I get to the back, and I'm lubing up my gun, um, and I'm checking on my soldiers. And that's when, like, they had gotten really quiet. And this is the first time I'm seeing my soldiers since this whole thing really popped off. Right. And Doyle, Doyle was my gunner and he was like a hot shot. I think he walked away in the deployment, like 60 something kills. Like he was, he was so good. And, but they all looked at me like they wanted to, like, especially Doyle and Garcia, they looked at me like they wanted to break some like bad news to me. And Garcia, who was in charge of comms said that the F-16 radioed in, obviously they could see where we're at. And they said that, um, you know, Hey, the air support says we're completely surrounded and I was like, yeah, man, I, I, yeah, I'm tracking. Like, I know. And then they said, my soldiers don't know that I just experienced that moment that close to the right. fighters. 
and um, they said that they think that there's an enemy force of 150 plus enemy fighters. And you know, I was like, yeah, it, it sure feels like it, bro. Like, and, and Garcia was like, sorry, there's only 16 of us. Like, what the fuck? What are we doing here? And that's and that's the moment in the book, and that was the moment in real life where I kind of like had to stop and think. I thought about the events on September of 2009, right. where I was on that mountain, and I was that scared private, and I had that doubt that we weren't getting off that mountain, and I knew that they were feeling the same things I was feeling back then, but I had to kind of try to embrace what my leaders did for me in 2009 and give that confidence to my soldiers um, so they understood that I needed them to revert to their primal stages in order to overcome the enemy that day. And I needed them to be as equally as brutal and harsh as combat is to, to overcome them. And so I, I kind of gave them a little pep talk. I, you know, I told them I just needed them to do their job essentially. And that I needed to go back out there. And so that I, and I, that sucked, that sucked as a leader because I probably should have stayed with them. You know, as my soldiers, I shouldn't, I shouldn't leave them. But I knew they needed me at the front of the truck. I knew the situation. I had the 249. Like I, they needed me more up there. But it really sucked leaving my soldiers. Um, and so when I got up to back to truck one, that's when they were going to start turning around so we could leave. And so I figured, well, I'll get up in the fight then. So um, that truck one's gun was still down. So I got up in the emergency hatch. And I have from my waist up is completely exposed. And that's when I'm shooting in the village. And I happen to see a guy come around this, um, around this uh, house. And I was just getting my weapon out of the turret and up to me. And he had already gotten two, three shots off on me, um, hit the top of the truck. And then I was able to barely acquire the target, put two into his torso. And, he, and before he dropped and hit the ground, I don't know if something hit the top of the truck or something exploded. I, I'm not really sure, but snap my something hit my face about an inch lower than my left eye, snapped my head back. I fell into the turret. Um, I landed in my buddy's lane's lap and then that's when he pulled like this long piece of shrapnel. He just pulled it out of my face. Well, didn't he tell you, you, uh, you were like, I think I'm shot, man. And he was like, no, it's just shrapnel. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. I, well, I told, I said, Lane, I'm hit, man. I'm hit. Cause I, I guess hard to, as soon as I got into his lap and I was not moving for a second, cause he caught me and he was like, what the fuck are you doing? And I started to feel like blood and I started right. to feel like just hot, just burning. And I was like, Lane, I think I'm hit, man. I want to touch it cause I couldn't see it. And, and Lane being Lane just pulled it out of my face, looked at it, threw it in the ground, told me to stop being a pussy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and before I could get out of his lap and get back up in the turret, that's when we looked out the front windshield. And that's where we saw fucking Kaz's defining moment. And he's running from the front of the truck to go to the back and link up with the infantry guys. And he's shooting in the cornfield and he goes completely black on ammo. And he shoots his last round. And as he does, an enemy fighter presents himself out of the cornfield. And he's raising his weapon up at Kaz. Kaz slings M4, draws M9 pistol, and shoots him twice in the torso and just kept running. And I was just like, I looked at Lane. I was like, bro, did we just witness someone get killed with a fucking pistol? Like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, man. Like, <laughs> I, so, so we call Kaz Pistol Pete. That's his, that's his forever nickname or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, so we, we exfilled the area. We got the casualty to the aid station. Um, myself and Lane got looked at and, um, and I think they said the BDA report was like 50 to 60 enemy fighters were killed or wounded of the 150. So it was a pretty successful, um, obviously air support had a lot to do with that because I, I also forgot on our exfil, they were doing like danger close strafing runs, like 25 meters off the trucks. So 
they were taking a lot of the kills too, but um, it was a successful mission essentially. So, well, if you figure well, they, you, figure, you know, you know, 16 of you, 160 of them from the air support, you, you kind of see that uh, it's almost like a 10 to one ratio. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, sure felt like it. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a lot of people. So lessons that you learned that day, what's a defining lesson that you walked away from that day going, I, I got to put this into my life for the rest of it. That's a good question. I mean, army wise, training does everything i mean thing my soldiers myself we just everything just fell into place training worked we just did what we knew was right and we ran through the steps and people were not doing too much they were doing what they thought was best and people were trying to get air support and uh they were doing just the small things on the radio and and the lubrication and the weapons and things that they can control they stayed in their sectors of fire and only concerned themselves with the things that they could affect um and and as a team we just got it we just fucking got it done and so army wise yeah that that's something i'll always take with me is how effective we were being completely outnumbered um and then personal wise man i don't know that's a good question i never really thought about it i think same same rule applies just just the sacrifice that we had for one another um you know I put myself in a position that I shouldn't have, but I thought was best as far as going out to that casualty and Lane and Kaz, you know, put themselves in positions that could have taken their life to save mine um, and that Afghan. So just the sacrifice of it all, something I I try to, you know, if they're willing to sacrifice their, their lives for, for me or put their lives online for me, then as a, just a you know, even just daily interaction with other humans, I have to try to do my best to, just be a better fucking human with whoever I come in contact with um, and and be grateful that I had men who were greater than me, you know, try to put themselves before me. And I try to live by that on my daily life now, years later. So I, I think that's probably one. I'm glad you mentioned that one because you talk about that in another section of the book where, and I'm probably going to butcher this name, but um, the Mara Wara, Police station. I, I don't know how to. Is, yeah. is that right? Bar-a-wara. Bar-a-wara? Yeah, you get it. Okay, yeah, you got it right. So you're, you're talking about the police station, and you go up on the roof, and I I guess from what I'm getting from the book is you're kind of you've got an Afghan with you that doesn't understand what you're talking about. You're shooting from a rooftop. You're trying to explain to him, and then you tell him go down, and as soon as you tell him go get people. As soon as you tell him that you're, you roll over in your head and you go, he's going to fuck this up. I know it. Yeah. He goes down and he says, American down. And you said, you look down and you see all these guys that are pinned down that at the flick of a switch, don't give a shit anymore that they're pinned down. They all start to move to come to your position to help you out. And you said that, that kind of changed your outlook just on, it made you even more proud one to be a soldier and then to know these kind of people. Yeah, exactly. It's a good defining moment. I, we have, we actually have that on camera because Castle was wearing, was wearing his helmet cam that day and that he was part of the pin down group. And, um, and in the very last seconds of the videos, when you see the police officer come over and he said, American down. And these dudes have been pinned down for minutes, you know, couldn't get up, picked their heads up. They didn't give a fuck. They all got up and ran to where I was at because I was cut off 
Um, yeah. And, and then when I saw them all come up position, I was like, damn, man, that's a, that's a damn good feeling. Yeah. Also that you knew that that guy was going to fuck that up. That I thought that was, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a telling moment in the book, but it's also funny where, I mean, you say it and then not a minute later that happens. So and because <laughs> yeah, w- yeah. With him doing that, I mean, he really put a lot of other soldiers' lives at risk because of that. Yeah. If he could have delivered, and and I get it. I, by no means am I saying there's not a communication barrier or anything like yeah. that there, but it put a lot more people uh, at risk. So you know, and that was that's the best part of it, though. Is I don't think even if even if they 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 got the correct message and found out that I was just pinned down by myself, I think they would have equally have gotten up and done the same thing. That, right. That, that's the difference. Tells a lot about them as, as soldiers and as people, and and that's the whole thing. Is there's a different kind of, and I I think you've been in the military long enough, and you've been in garrison and in combat units. There, you would say that in everyone that I've ever talked to about it, there's a difference in the type of bonds that are formed. You can be close mm-hmm. to someone that you just work with, but for someone to say they'll lay down their life for you you'll lay down their life for them there's a different kind of bond um yeah and and i i think that might be part of what's hard for you now is because there's not those kind of bonds everyone is kind of now looking to make rank they're looking for their next opportunity in the military and it's a completely different army that you're in now than than your prior experiences yeah, the army has changed. The people have changed as well. Now, let me uh, ask they, you a question. We've had a couple of people on here that I've talked to. Of course, I went to Fort Leonard Wood a long time ago whenever I went to school there. But is there stress cards now? Is that a real thing? From what I heard, yeah. I, I, I don't deal with the privates. I stay the fuck away from the drill sergeant life right. and all that stuff. But, yeah, from what I'm hearing, it's they, they're stress cards. They don't call them they call them warrior companions instead of battle buddies now. And I think they're changing the name to the, the they're no longer going to use the word defect and it's the army restaurant. <laughs> Swear to God. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to be called basic training anymore. I think it's gonna be called the army, the army camper or, or something like that. Oh, nice. Swear just to God. listen, yeah. just cause you pour syrup on shit. Don't make it pancakes. Okay. So, right. <laughs> you know, the food in the defect sucks. So yeah. the only f- food I ever liked in the defect was breakfast. That was it. <laughs> yeah. Lunch and yeah. dinner are shitty. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> There's a couple more things that I want to talk about in the book. You, you use the word wake up a lot. Now, mm-hmm. does that come from when that Sergeant told you kind of wake up in that first big battle is that where it kind of derives from or did you have that before because you tell yourself in the book a lot wake up get back on target and yeah no that was something i implemented after i decided i wanted to write the book and i kind of added that to the story but okay because i I found myself kind of trying to tell myself to wake up you know that's the first words of the book and when my my soldier melton wakes me up and then it's kind of like an easter egg throughout the book during key moments that i'm just constantly trying to tell myself to wake up and at the very end, the last page of the book, it kind of explains that, you know, all these years later, I've been trying to, I've been trying to tell myself to wake up and, you know, just, just snap out of it kind of thing. But I can't because I've realized that years ago, um, initially during that first big battle in September of 2009, that we all kind of died that day, you know, mentally, 
we we're all kind of still roaming that valley, roaming that mountain. You know, physically, I might I may still be here in 2020, but mentally, uh, you know, I feel like I've died all that time ago. So there's a there's a, sep- a gap separation, and it's taken me this this long to kind of realize that. Well, and that's a that's a big thing that you do talk about at the end of the book is that, you know, even though a lot of people didn't die over there, their their kind of soul is still roaming that area like a it, a piece of them has been left there yep. for till the end of time. Let's also talk about uh, Lieutenant Parton. Uh, you mentioned him mm-hmm. a lot in the book, his, uh, and we, we don't want to get into that cause I don't want to give away the whole book. I want people to read that kind of stuff in the book, but you were face to face with this guy. Uh, you knew him before that his guitar playing. Can you just describe kind of your relationship with him and why it's so important that to this day, you still do the fundraising for him? Yeah. So, so he wasn't my organic, uh, Lieutenant. I had a really good Lieutenant, Lieutenant Nicholson, who was our organic MP, uh, LT. But when our squad got detached from our platoon and got sent up North by ourselves, when I was in that role as a medic, we got attached to three, six, one Cav hatch platoon and we, it was his platoon. So they took us in, like we were just another squad, one of their own. They, they took care of us. We shared the same CP as them. Um, and you know, they did their missions, we did ours, but administratively they took care of us and always make sure we, we had everything. So I'd always be in the CP with him. Um, cause I used to work a tiger system. I had to plug all the information in for my squad leader. And so I'd be in the CP. He'd always be playing his guitar and he was just a, a nice and friendly guy. Um, he was a West point graduate, super, super smart. Uh, everyone just loved him. He's a really nice guy. So, um, that was, it was key for me that, um, he was the center of the book. Um, his foundation was as well. Like, so some of my proceeds that I get go to his foundation. Um, and it, it's just a centerpiece of the book because, um, yeah, the, the second battle was cool. We killed a lot of people. It was a badass American moment. Um, it, it's a good way to close the book, but chapter five seems to be everyone's very emotional chapter because obviously there's an American that is killed and all the emotion that kind of comes with it. But, I figured if I don't talk about him, then he dies twice. And so it's my due diligence to talk about him, you know, because how many other Lieutenant Partons are out there? How many veterans have stories uh, of people who they served with who were killed in these crazy battles or firefights? And they, because these veterans don't want to talk about it, those names never get told again. So as long as I live, I will always talk about Lieutenant Parton and who he was. And so I could try to keep him and his foundation alive as much as possible. That's my, that's my, that's my job. That's yeah. My and, and that's what we try and do on this show a lot is, is get out those stories. People may have heard them, but they don't know the insides of what's going on. And we, what we want to do is really humanize people. And I think that you've done a fantastic job in this book of humanizing people that, that other people don't know, you know, that that's just a name to people. But when you really put flesh and blood and, and character to these guys, it, it really makes it personal to people of someone Maybe they didn't know him, but they knew someone else like him. And so mm-hmm. um, I can't tell you enough. Fantastic book that you did. Um, and and I really enjoy that you talk about your feelings. So in wrapping this up, let's talk about a couple of the things that you're doing, what you want to promote, and then we'll move on and, and talk about uh, just where you go from here. So what are some of the things that you – want to put out there? Cause I know there's a lot of different things that you're doing right now, not just the book. Yeah. So, I mean, the book is just a foundation. It's just a platform, but like social media wise, I've been using like my Instagram a lot to partner up with a lot of uh, veteran owned businesses. And I just want to help them get their names out there. Um, we do a lot of giveaways. 
you know, I try to showcase their artwork, whatever that may be, whether it's woodworking or, or painting or whatever. Um, and they can give these items away. Like we'll do like one giveaway and it gets them some followers. It gets them some customers. Cause I know how hard it is. Well, I don't know how hard it is, but I know I have a lot of friends that have transitioned out of the military right. and it's very hard for them to go from one job to another. And especially if they're a business owner um, and they spent X amount of years in the military, they don't have that background. They're just kind of jumping right into it. So it's our job to support one another in our veteran community. So I, like I said, I try to showcase these guys and their businesses so that they can earn money, right? Because they're not like, they're not six figure, like multi-billion dollar corporations. And I mean, those people have their fucking money, man. Like the veterans deserve that shit. They deserve happiness. And I, and I want to do anything I can to get them that happiness, um, whether that's just a small post to recognize who they are and what they've done. Um, and, and I try to just highlight veterans in general. Um, and I, I also use my social media as a platform to reach out to others who, if they need someone to talk to, like I'm very transparent as far as I, I read every single message I get. Um, and I give out my email, I give my personal cell phone. Someone needs someone to talk to. Um, I just, that's just kind of, that's what I would want. And you know, if I, if I was in dire need and so I just try to be an outlet for veterans, simple as that. Well, uh, you do a lot of great things on there, and we had talked the other night. I want to hook you up with uh, the guys from 22 Kill because I think they have a really important mission about um, stopping veteran suicide because it's kind of out of control right now, especially with all these lockdowns and everything. A lot of people are, like you said, that that PTS is really starting to – talk to them a lot so we need to do everything we can they they defended us they gave us these freedoms we need to do everything we can to make sure that they're taken care of on the back side of it so guys um this has been a, a great talk uh the book is ghosts of the valley i'm going to put links up to it where you can get it everywhere uh go ahead and give out your facebook and your instagram so people can find you on there yeah so the ghost of the valley has its own facebook and instagram um and then for my my personal uh, Sean Tobias Ambrose is my Facebook. And then my Instagram is uh, chief underscore pink mist. Um, you could get the book on, on Amazon, Nook and Kindle. And then we're also, I'm just waiting for my publisher. He's kind of dragging his feet. I keep harping to him, but we're going to release an audio book here soon. And uh, so you read the book yes. and you know how like there's a bunch of internal dialogue and, and italicized mm-hmm. stuff. So I went and I recorded all that. And then he hired a professional reader who's going to read the entire book. Um, but when those italicized parts come up, you'll actually hear my voice in the audio books. So it's like my own internal thoughts. So it's kind of double narrate. It's different. That'd try be, some, try something new. That'd be pretty new. cool. Well, and another cool thing, since you brought that up about the book, is your list of resources at the end of it. I mean, mm-hmm. there's pages and pages of resources for people to whatever they whatever kind of help they may need. And that's another thing that makes this book so great. So guys, make sure you pick it up. You can, it's in softback. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Nook, on Kindle. An audio book is coming out. So it's called Ghosts of the Valley. You guys definitely need to check this out and hear these stories. We only talked about a small portion of what happened over there. And what's great about this book, it's a very fast read, I think. Um, and it covers just important things it doesn't get into the minutia of everything that's going on over there it gets to the important parts that made you the soldier that you are today and i think it can really help other people that are 
dealing with this PTS and, and thinking about things that went on over there or in the Middle East or wherever they may have been. So, guys, that's going to be it for the show this week. I'll put all the links up to get the book. It's been Sean Tobias Ambrose. He is now at Fort Leonard Wood. So if you're in that area, which I hope no one ever is in that area of Fort <laughs> Leonard Wood, you can stop by and say hi. But if not, yeah. hit him up on Facebook, on Instagram. Yeah. If you want more of us, you can find us at Twitter at Doublespeak DJ, at Facebook at the DTD Podcast, and on YouTube at the DTD Podcast. That's going to be it for the show this week. That's Sean. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you on the next one. See you guys.